Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of How Did They Do a Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Sayla Prague. Today, I am a great honor to have our honors guest, Mark Curry, coming back, uh, joining us on a second episode. If you're tuning in for the first time, Mark came to our podcast for the first time with episode 163 that actually went live on April 30, 2021, so about two years ago, where he provided tips on how to invest in the recession and resistant real estate assets. And today I'm great honored to have him coming back again. So Mark, thank you so much for spending time with me today. How are you doing today? I'm well, Sailor. Thank you for having me back. So our listeners just turning in for the first time, I know I possibly can provide some quick bios and background, but how about Mark, you tell a little bit about yourself and how you get started with real estate to begin with, and possibly a little bit about your company as well. Sure. Yeah. So how did I get started? Well, I have a finance background. I was working in corporate America for a number of years, started investing in real estate on the side, you know, after work, very active, a lot of value add assets dealing with a lot of contractors, property managers, you name it, and bought one, bought another, started partnering with family members to continue to expand our portfolio, brothers, parents, aunts, uncles, all of them, and anyone in between, and did that again from 2005 to 2010. And then by 2010, uh, left corporate America, formed our firm, SMK Capital Management, partnered with my father to create our company. And just continued doing what we were doing kind of more part-time into a full-time company. And then, you know, fast forward 13 years now, we've been actively investing in many different assets of real estate. Our form today is really more of a private equity syndication firm. We source great deals in different asset classes with different operating partners. And we raise equity from our investor group to provide that with our operating partners to acquire assets. Maybe one important point is we invest in apartments, we invest in self-storage, we like mobile home parks and, and a few other niche asset classes as well. That's great. That's great. Mark, so the last time we spoke in 2021 until today, so what has changed and what your companies has been focusing on? Sure. Well, the big change since 21, Sela, is interest rates and inflation, of course. So in early 2022, we essentially pivoted our strategy slightly to focus very much on, I would say, medium to longer term investments with fixed rate debt, a lot of them, trying not to be a seller at the wrong time, really in anticipation of a market correction, really looking for assets that have in-place cash flow year one. So we buy something and do nothing to it we'll still earn a nice dividend each quarter from the acquisition onward. That's been a big part of our change, Sailor. We haven't adjusted asset classes much. We still mm-hmm. focus on our core that I just mentioned and still very much on diversification along those lines as well. Have you seen any difficulties in terms of finding deals or getting a deal that are actually meeting your criteria anymore? How's that working out for you? Absolutely. It's it's much harder, right? There's a negative leverage has been introduced into the marketplace for the first time since, gosh, since I started my career uh, over a couple of decades, I think it's been, Sela, where you have 
essentially the going in cap rate is lower than the interest rate that we're borrowing at. And so that is a different dynamic, a different set of hurdle from an underwriting and getting the properties to actually meet a, a positive cash flow standpoint. And so where have we adjusted to be able to overcome that challenge and change in the market? A lot of it has to do with asset class and investment strategy. So one quick example, we invest in tax-exempt apartments. Mm-hmm. And those assets, we don't have to pay property taxes on them, but we keep half the units affordable by definition and the other half at market rate. And so that investment class, once we get the tax exemption in place at acquisition, we actually will usually see a very healthy spread between the interest rate and the going in cap rate. Mm -hmm. So we're able to overcome some of that financial challenge on the first day of the investment. So that's one way. But a lot of folks are struggling with that. We continue to see that as a problem in the marketplace today to make the numbers work and to make sellers and buyers actually transact with one another. And so we'll see where it goes, but definitely something that we've all experienced and continue to experience. Got it. And in terms of underwriting itself, what are some of the things that you guys doing now to make sure that it's still conservative and still realistic? Do you have any tips that you can share with us? A quick one is what I just mentioned, right? Just look at the going in cap rate versus the interest rate. That's a good, simple place to start. If you can create, have an investment where there's a positive spread, the interest rate and cap rate, cap rate is higher than the interest rate of 75 to 150 basis points. Mm -hmm. That's most likely going to have a higher cash on cash return starting out the investment, which helps reduce risk because you have more free cash flow. We're looking at... A lot of different metrics from an expense standpoint, Sela. We've experienced surging insurance costs. We've seen very high increase in some other expense items, including payroll, including materials, labor, and several others as well. But really just want to be a bit more conservative on what you think it's going to cost for these types of expenses because they've all gone up pretty drastically mm-hmm. depending on location and type of asset and vintage And then obviously, if you look at rent growth, that's also slowed down drastically in a lot of markets since even just last year and the year before. And so being conservative with underwriting on rent growth, and then we stress test all of our deal sales. So I'll go in and we'll just look at the pro forma and we'll assume, hey, assume rents don't go up at all throughout the life of the investment. How much would that affect the projected returns? Mm -hmm. Exit cap rate, another big one, right? Where are we at today? It's adjusting daily. Again, with the imbalance between buyers and sellers, there's very much price discovery happening. It's been been happening for three, four quarters now. So we project a higher exit cap rate than we are going in. We've been doing that for a number of years, but that's another way to be a little more cautious and safer today because we just don't know. We're just more volatile. There's a lot Mm. more uncertainty out there. And some of these strategies, again, if you just can stress the deal. Hey, we're projecting an exit cap of five and a half. But what happens if it's six? What happens if it's six and a half? Where's the break even? Is it 9% or is it Mm 5.75? So you can see how sensitive the analysis might be to fluctuations in the market. So what about the feedback uh, from the LP investor or limited partner investor when you guys are doing capital raising? Do you have any feedback from the investors in terms of the current market or what type of deals are they looking for or what type of returns are they expecting now compared to like two years ago? 
Yeah, Sela, I'm an investor. I'm a little stubborn. So <laughs> what I mean by that is not a lot of people want to accept a lower return. Now, mm-hmm. and realistically, lower return typically also should equate to a lower risk, right? And so that may or may not be the case, but a lot of the conversations we have with our investors is really around, is it a safe time to invest? Is it a good time to invest? Should I just be sitting on the sidelines and waiting? And there's a lot of answers to these questions, of course, but one thing we're always trying to keep up with is inflation. And so if we're sitting on the sidelines and not investing, then you're actually losing money every month to inflation. And so what we're trying to achieve is a uh, positive cash flow to help combat inflation and, of course, grow our investment dollars. And so we look for investments, again, that provide positive cash flow in year one to help really fight against deteriorating cash from inflation. So that's a big conversation today that a lot of folks are asking. Of course, with debt and the rising interest rates, how do we overcome some of those challenges, fixed rate debt? And then is a big one where, hey, we can, we can fix this interest rate for 10 years. And on tax-exempt apartments, for example, Sela, we get more favorable financing terms from Fannie Freddie due to the affordable housing component. Mm-hmm. So you actually can get really attractive leverage, usually a little bit lower interest rate than you would on a regular apartment acquisition. Seven years interest only, 10 years fixed. So very attractive terms there. And that's another area that we help reduce the risk of what's going on out there today. Got it. Got it. And Mark, is your company focusing on the single assets or are you focusing on funds or anything like that as well? We do both, Sela. We love creating funds and we also do single asset investing. For us, why? It just depends on deal flow. So we look at about 10 to 20 deals a month. We invest in this year, maybe five or six in the whole year. And so it's just a filtration process where we're looking for something very specific. And when we find it, great, let's go and underwrite and do a lot of due diligence and homework on it, make sure it meets our investment criteria. And sometimes for the purpose of the question of do we do funds, we'll find a few different investments that we think go well together and we'll create a fund and we'll put them together. So investors in that fund can spread their capital across multiple deals, multiple operating partners multiple assets, regions, different terms, medium-term, long-term, income, growth, really just diversify, diversify, and and spread and reduce risk without hopefully sacrificing on return. That's always the goal. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we do both. We love both. We think there's a time and place for each. We also will just do a rifle shot, single asset investment, hey, one, two, three, Main Street in the city. Got it. And uh, for the funds itself, you mentioned about pros, right? Like where you can actually diversify to multiple assets and they work well together. They can share like operating expenses and all kinds of stuff. And what about the cons? Are there any disadvantage of investing in a fund? Yeah, I mean, one disadvantage could be if you're one of the earlier investors in the fund, it might be a blind fund, right? Where mm-hmm. you, the operating partner or us, we haven't actually identified any of the assets that we're going to invest in. Or We haven't actually invested in them yet. So you don't know if they're going to do well or not. Mm -hmm. And so if you're early on, one of the risks is not knowing exactly what you're getting into versus an individual deal. Hey, here's the property address, Mm -hmm. here's the pro forma, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a big one. And then you have to rely on the fund manager. Once you do invest, they're going to continue to probably add more assets to the fund, but you're already 
committed at that point. So you don't really know what else could be added to it. So there's a little bit of a layer of trust there where you're relying on the fund manager to hopefully select and invest wisely on your behalf into multiple assets. But in turn, with that risk, Sela, you should be getting a better return from a risk-adjusted standpoint because you are getting diversification and spreading your dollars across multiple deals. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. And for your companies, for the fund itself, I know your company is like investing in multiple asset classes, multi-family, self-storage, mobile home park. When you're creating a fund, are they specifically to one asset class or do you actually spread them across those different asset classes? We'll typically have multiple asset classes in the fund. And there's a reason for that, right? So if you take, for example... A heavier value add mobile home park deal. Maybe mm-hmm. we're buying a park where there's 70% occupancy and we have the ability to bring in new and, and rehabbed homes into the community over the first couple of years, raise occupancy, and really grow NOI by doing that. You might not get much cash flow from that investment for the first couple of years while that value add strategy is going on. Mm-hmm. So by itself, it's a good investment, but we also want the cash flow, right? From the growth aspect, we like it, but it's lacking a little bit on the income. And so then if you take that and then you put it in a fund, or maybe I want to say opposite, but a different risk reward profile investment that may have a you know, 95% occupied property that's well-financed and leveraged and it's producing you know 5 6% cash flow year one and is projected to grow, but there's a lot less risk of what we call execution risk, right? So for the mobile home park deal, you have to go do a lot of work to grow the NOI. So that Mm -hmm. increases risk. And so you'll be compensated for that if successful through the growth of the value of the asset. But on the income deal, 95% occupied, you might not have as much growth. You might see a lot more consistent income. And so by themselves, you kind of are, again, it's not, no, there's no perfect investment, right? But you can- you can help achieve more of the goals of income and growth by putting them together. And so that's a quick overview of kind of how we look at different assets and maybe why we like to create funds and put them together. Got it. That makes totally sense. And it's amazing fun too, is how like you actually putting like multiple different asset classes all together and you got your diversifications on like different asset classes. That's really awesome. And for our listener who be just getting into trying to invest in a fund for the first time, like as an LP, what type of typical, if it's a 5 or 6C, by all means, please answer the questions. But if not, then please let me know. What's a typical return or structure that usually they can see from a fund itself from a limited partner standpoint? Sure. Yeah. And most everything we do is 506C. So our investors are accredited. But 
Just in general, say like what kind of returns are we targeting? I can tell you that we try and provide our investors investments that can provide them three to seven percent cash on cash starting in year one. Mm-hmm. And then we usually want that to grow. And so if we look at the average cash on cash, just while we're holding from distributions, we're targeting usually seven to twelve percent. And then once we add in the profits from the sale of the asset, we're trying to achieve you know 15% plus average annual ROI. So that includes the profits from the sale plus the distributions while we hold. So that's usually where we're targeting. Almost most of our single asset investments and our funds fall within that range of return. Got it. And which market is your company focusing on right now? We're invested in, I want to say, over 35 states, Sela. So where our focus tends to be is the South, the Southeast, the Midwest. And Mm -hmm. the reason why is just a lot of growth in these markets, a lot of data, trends, net in migration, population growth, job growth. We love Texas and a lot of reasons there, but data keeps pointing back to these kinds of regions as what we would call help reducing risk. Because if you've got, again, some tailwinds from the market, that can help you overcome any challenges that you may not see coming in the future. And so we're, we're always looking for strong markets that we think we can achieve our goals or beat them. The Midwest is great for income and cash flow. You tend to have a little bit lower asset value, and sometimes you may have similar rents. And so you might get a little bit higher cash flow, but maybe a mm-hmm. little bit less appreciation depending on where it is. And so each market can provide you a piece of the puzzle. You tend to stay away from the coast, Sela. There's not much cash flow in California <laughs> due to high pricing and the rent to price ratio. That's usually we're focusing our attention. Got it. And Mark, and also it's like, I want to ask you this question. I know you don't have a crystal ball, right? But what do you think the real estate investment market look like in 2023 and potentially 2024 in your opinion? Yeah. So, I mean, we've already started to see, so I'll explain this second half of 2022, we started seeing, of course, a big imbalance between sellers and buyers. Buyers want to pay X, sellers want Y. And that big gap between bid and ask is primarily due to inflation and the Fed's battle of inflation by raising interest rates. And so the cost of borrowing has gone up drastically. We're still there today. We did see and hear that the Fed in the last couple of meetings has really implied that interest rate increases maybe at a peak, maybe we're not going to see anymore. And perhaps the worst is behind us there. If you look at inflation, it's been coming down pretty consistently for the last several months now. And we think that perhaps we're at a peak from those two data points, which could help bring sellers and buyers back in line. It's hard to project when you're looking at a potential acquisition sale, the borrowing cost going to be in 60 or 90 days. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were padding the numbers, of course, right? To try and make sure that they didn't miss their targets because of the rapid velocity and increase in interest rates. And so we think there's going to be a little bit more of back to normal when it comes to underwriting that should help bring more transactional volume, help bring a little bit more price discovery in the market to know what assets are trading for and have comparable sales. So yeah, I don't have a crystal ball, but Perhaps the worst is behind us and we'll just be patient, continue to wait, continue to focus on investments that we think really have a lower risk due to something special about them and make sense regardless of what might come in the near future. And if we don't find that, then we won't invest. That's a big part of how we look at things. And so 
But I do think that perhaps the worst is behind us. I think we're also starting to see, we just read some data this week, that the last two months, renter demand is going up. And we're starting to see a more stabilization from some of the occupancy declines that we experienced in Q3 and Q4 of 2022. And so there's enough signals out there to make us at least say that we believe perhaps we've reached a peak and we might see some better trends in the second half of 2023 and early 2024. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that insight, Mark. We really appreciate you. And for our listener who turning in for the first time, like Mark and his company is actually invested in over 120 properties with a combined values of $1 billion of assets. So for someone who wanted to be like you, right, Mark, like creating a very successful company, how can they do that? Any tips or anything that you can share with our listeners or our active syndicators who wanted to scale up their business to to the level as your company, as yourself? The one thing that I always go back to as far as our success, a couple of things to remember here, you know, been in real estate for 18 years, so it takes time for sure and patience, but more importantly as well is the people you work with. Number one, most important for my experience in our company is who we work with, who we choose to partner with. And so we tend to try and find a pedigree of folks and companies, Sayla, that are just really good at what they do, much better than we could do. And we want to partner with them. And so that's a big part of our success is again, we, we were in real estate, but we're really in the people business. I know it sounds cliche, but align yourself with others that are much better than you <laughs> at something that you want to achieve and try and partner with them. Got it. Mark, what is next for you and SMK Capital Management? So we're going to continue creating funds, Sela. We're working on one as we speak, highly diversified across multiple asset classes. Again, focusing on some of the same investment criteria, in-place cash flow, growth, and keep doing that over and over as much as possible, more of a rinse and repeat kind of model. So that's really our focus, Sela. Change things too often or too much. We kind of know after many years in the business what we like to invest in. We're typically not trying something new at this stage of the cycle due to the volatility and the risk out there, really focusing on what we know works well and doing more of that. Got it. And finally, it's my last question. If our listeners who are limited partners who wanted to participate funds or in a syndication for the first time, especially in 2023, what tips can you provide to them? Yeah. So when it comes to looking at different deals, there's a lot of different things you can do. But if you start at the operating partner level, how many years have they been in business? What's their track record? How good are they? Right. And there's a lot of operating partners out there. So there's thousands of them. And so try and really get to know them well. If you find a group that you think is going to help you meet your investment criteria, make sure that they're the best in their asset class. or very close to it. And really just pros, right? And line yourself with the best people. So that's the first one. I would also, as you can tell, we love diversification and spreading across multiple asset classes. And so if you can do that as well, great. And also location, look at the location of the asset. We tend to stay away from tertiary locations, Sela, that maybe have stagnant or declining population growth. There's a lot of reasons why you might want to go into a market that has a little bit more growth. You'll tend to also find a lot of people don't think about this is in five or 10 years, when you want to sell the asset, do you think there's going to be more 
or less buyers for that property, right? And so mm-hmm. we don't invest in office for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason is I think in five to 10 years, there's going to be even less buyers for office. And maybe I'm wrong, but we don't want to take that risk today and, and bet on that. We'd rather invest in affordable apartments where we know that the supply demand disequilibrium is in our favor. And there's a lot of buyers and a lot of residents looking for that asset class. When it comes to deal analysis and underwriting, we looked, we talked about some of those sale. I won't repeat myself there, but just remember that occupancies and rent growth are very much being tested right now. Mm-hmm. So you're going to want to test the assumptions, you know, ask the operator, Hey, you've got a 5% rent growth in year two. Why? Where 2%, you know, just ask a lot more questions on how they're coming up with their assumptions. Those are some of the points, but I think another one is important to look at is how often is an operating partner raising capital for a deal? Do they always have a fund and always have a deal open, ready to accept capital? And that might be okay, but you might want to ask some questions as to how is that? Do they have just the best acquisitions team on the planet? How are they always finding amazing deals? Or are they really good at marketing and able to raise capital? So they want to actually put it to work and grow the company. And if so, you just got to weigh those two out and make sure it's a good fit for you when, when looking at the actual need for capital. That totally makes sense. And Mark, thank you so much for spending time with me again for the second time and coming on and talk to me about like uh, your companies, what you guys have been doing in the last two years and what to look out for in this market, especially in this market right now. And the tip for our investor, how to get started for the first time, what to look out for is, and as well as talking about the fund structure. So Mark, we really appreciate your time. So if our listener wanted to find out more about you or about SMK, capital management, where can they go? Yeah, just take a look at our website, which is smkcap.com. We've got a lot of information there, Sela. Investors can sign up to get more information, be part of our investor group, some recent investment examples on there. And then also you can email me at info at smkcap.com. Mark, thank you so much. It's a great honor to have you coming on. So we appreciate your time. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, Check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sale and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.